when we had uh, Deacon, um, one of the things that was like uh, we, we, we told all the kids, there was this moment for um, all but one of them where they were all excited. They couldn't wait for Deacon to come and be born. But there was one of our children that was not so certain. She was uh, actually kind of um, distant and angry at the idea of another child being welcomed into our family. And when this child found out that Deacon was going to be a boy and not a girl, she started to warm up to him, or the idea of him. And then when he came into the world, um, we would be off, you know, doing something, and Danette would be like, where's Deacon? And she would search, and then she would find Deacon in the arms of this sister who did not necessarily at first want him. Like, grafting someone into a family, adding an addition into a family, is a hard thing, right? Whether it's a new child or an adopted child or an adult in-law or a, uh, some outsider who becomes an insider, that whole part is difficult. There's history and experience and time, and all of that keep, makes it difficult. We become set in our ways. We think there's one way of thinking, and then someone's introduced and introduces us to another way of thinking, and it is difficult for someone to be grafted into a family. Now, I want you to think about this in two ways this morning. First, this particular church that Paul is addressing by his letter in Rome. Remember, this church was a church that was founded by a group of um, Jewish Christians, people who had heard the gospel, believed, and they were either sent or moved or lived in Rome, and they formed a church. And then under Claudius, Claudius ejected some of these Jewish Christians. They had to leave Rome, and the Gentiles who were converted under the ministry of these Jewish Christians became the leaders of this church. And so Paul is writing a letter into this context where the Jewish Christians have now come back to Rome, and it's an intermixed church. So I want you to think about it that way. And second, I want you to remember that salvation history. The history of salvation is that the gospel, the good news about a coming king named Jesus who would save the world from their sins came first to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the people of Israel and then to the world. That is important for us to understand. Like being a new family, being a new person being grafted into uh, your family, this is what's happening in salvation history. And that's why it's so cataclysmic, and that's why Paul addresses it several different times in the book of Romans. This starts to hit upon some of the difficulties that Paul is trying to work out. And so today, our outline is framed in two large questions. The first is, what is happening to Israel And the second is, what will happen to Israel? Like, what is the place of Israel in the salvation history to come? And so first, this first question, what is happening to Israel? Well, first, Paul addresses this with rhetorical questions as he's been doing all through the book of Romans. He asks these questions that he himself is going to answer. And the first question he asks is, have they not heard in verse 18? Have the Jewish people not heard? Is this why they are not believing? Remember, Jews as a whole are not believing. Now, some are believing, but as a whole, they have rejected Jesus. 
And this is a key thing in the book of Romans. If the Jews are rejecting the gospel that Paul is preaching, that Paul is holding up, then the question is, is this gospel that Paul is preaching really true? Like there's an apologetics question here. How can we believe this is true if the people who are most connected to God throughout history are rejecting Jesus as the Son of God, the prophesied Messiah? So Paul asks a question. Have they not heard? Is that why they are not believing? And the answer is no. And then he partially quotes Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day by day pours forth speech. Night by night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Paul is saying that in the same way, creation has spoken God's presence into the earth And all of earth has heard that God is creator, at least in looking at creation, in the same way Israel has heard the news of King Jesus. They have heard. Well, did they not understand? That's the second question, verses 19 to 21. That's another question, right? They've heard it, but maybe they did not understand. We all know this. We have people in our life where we hear something they tell us and we mishear or we don't understand what it was exactly that they said. And that causes confusion. Communication theory is built on this idea of understanding what is heard. Well, maybe they didn't understand. And Paul doesn't necessarily directly answer. It's maybe or maybe not. Now, they, they heard the good news. They've been exposed to it. But they missed how Jesus could be the Messiah. So even though they heard, they didn't quite understand all of it. And then Paul curiously says, well, the Gentiles had no understanding either, right? Like the Gentile world, they didn't know. They didn't know the nature of God. They didn't know their sin. Remember in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul unpacks this idea that the Gentile world didn't have any knowledge. And yet, Paul says they were without excuse. So the Gentiles didn't understand. They didn't know. Paul is working out this continuing part of his argument. The Gentiles didn't grasp their need for forgiveness. They didn't know they needed an alien righteousness. They didn't understand the promises of God and Jesus. But the Gentiles heard, and they believed. And the Jew hasn't. So Paul quotes first from Deuteronomy 32, and he outlines this thought on envy. Here's the thought. If Israel had made God jealous by worshiping non-gods, then God will make Israel jealous by raising up a non-people, the Gentiles. Israel may not understand, implies Paul, but a nation that has no understanding will. And then he quotes Isaiah 65.1. Isaiah insists that the Gentiles who never sought or asked for the gospel have found it. They found the thing that Israel should have found and missed. Why? Why didn't Israel understand, right? They have the law, the prophets. They have the teachers and the scribes dedicated to teaching it. Now, don't miss the shock of this. How could they not understand? Like, you know that feeling when you lay out all the facts about some given thing you're passionate about. I am passionate about LeBron being better than Jordan. So I could lay out all the facts to you and tell you how much better LeBron is than Jordan. And you might still not believe it or buy it. And I might be shocked by that. We do this all the time. We lay out arguments about things and then we're shocked when someone doesn't see 
the veracity of our argument. And this is what Paul is doing here. It's shocking. It should be a tremendous shock that the Jews do not believe the gospel about Jesus. Why? Why don't they believe? Well, we've talked a lot about gift giving in the book of Romans. God has offered Israel the gift of his grace, but their hands were full of their own works. Does this mean that God can't overcome this lack of understanding? Well, no, because look at the Gentiles. They did not understand, and now they do. God can overcome any lack of understanding. But Israel, Paul says, hardened their hearts in disobedience. They rejected Jesus, thus rejecting God and his word. And God was holding out his hands, revealing himself to Israel, but they closed their eyes and ears and went the other way. Just like we do sometimes kids when you're, like you do when your mom and dad calls, you pretend like you did not hear, that you did not understand. And so this leads to the third question, to under what is happening to Israel. Has God then rejected them? This is told in verses uh, 1 through 6 of chapter 11. And the answer Paul gives again is a strong no. No, God has not rejected Israel. And then he gives two examples. The first example is himself. Right, Paul, I am a Jew. I was a persecutor of Christ. I blasphemed God, and God didn't give up on me. He had mercy on me. He chose me. He enlightened me and gave me understanding of the good news about Jesus. Luther says this, If God had cast away his people, then above all, he would have cast away the apostle Paul, who fought against him with all his strength. And then the second example he gives is Elijah. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah despairs. He thinks in this interaction with the prophets of Baal, there's all these prophets of Baal, and he feels like he's the last one. He thinks God has abandoned Israel, and he's the only believer left standing. Now let me stop here and say, some of you have felt this, right? Like maybe at your school, I know my daughter has felt this at times on her soccer team. Maybe you felt it in your job or your family. Like, you're the only believer. You're the only one, and you feel despair. You despair over that. And so Elijah despairs and wonders, is God done with us as Israel? Has God moved on from us? But God says to Elijah, you don't know. There are 7,000 others who have not bowed the kneel the knee to Baal. There's more people, Elijah, than you can count. And Paul makes it clear in verses 5 and 6, right? It is only by God's grace that there is a remnant. God has preserved a remnant chosen by grace. God has elected a remnant, true Israel within ethnic Israel, and he hasn't rejected them. And what guarantees this? Well, Well, God guarantees it. God preserves his people. It is always by grace. Paul is an example, and the 7,000 are an example of what God does, unbeknownst oftentimes to us. And so that leads to the fourth question. What then? What then? Verses 7 to 10. Paul continues to tease out this point. There is a remnant. There has always been a remnant. There's always been some elected people within the people of Israel, and there's always been others that God has passed over. In other words, Paul says not all of Israel is true Israel. Some sought righteousness, but they sought it by works and not by gifts. The elect, those remnant, received the gift by grace because they sought it as gifts. So they are 
hardening themselves, Paul says. In verse 8, he quotes Isaiah, who's paraphrasing Moses in Deuteronomy. Moses warned Israel in his day that there was a rebellion resulting in God giving them spiritual blindness. Isaiah told Israel that they had continued to this very day. Now I am telling you that this hardening is still ongoing. And then in verses 9 and 10, he quotes Psalm 69. Hardening, we find out, is the result of pride. Rejection of God leads to being passed over, cut off. Someone can be earnest, sincere, trying so hard, and they can still resist and miss grace. So what's happening here is that Israel has rejected God. He has not so much rejected them. And Paul writes, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What does that mean? What were they seeking? They were seeking salvation by works, salvation through attainment of status or class or ethnic identity as Israel. They thought they were pleasing to God naturally by virtue of who they were. But you will never attain righteousness by virtue of who you are. So because they sought a righteousness of their own, God hardens them. As we come to the end of this first question, what is happening to Israel? What does it mean for us? Now listen, it was not just Israel who sought to please God by obedience and righteousness and failed to obtain it. You see, for us in this room, grace is sometimes fleeting, right? This is the way of religion. Religion says God will love me if I obey. A person can try so hard to please God that they resist the very idea of grace, of God giving us what we don't deserve. Why? Because people, you and I, oftentimes want to deserve favor. It's good to seek God's righteousness, but that eagerness can easily be used to make the gospel seem unworthy of that righteousness. So sin in our hearts and the evil one perform a kind of spiritual judo move on us, using our own momentum against us to take us down. Maybe that's who you are today. You have a real desire to please God and an unwitting pride in your own spiritual abilities to do it, so that your heart becomes deeply allergic and hard to the mercy and love of God, to grace. The truth is, none of us can attain righteousness of God on our own. Israel couldn't do it. Paul couldn't do it. We can't do it. It is by grace that we're saved. What we need to experience is God's mercy to receive what he freely offers, the righteousness of God. This is what the Jews and Gentiles both need, Paul says, and they have always needed this. In fact, Paul talks about how God will indeed give grace to the Jewish people, to Israel, And that leads to the second question, what will happen to Israel? And Paul introduces this by asking his last rhetorical question. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, is the stumbling of Israel permanent? Are are the Jews beyond recovery? Is God just starting over? And Paul says, no. No, this was all part of God's plan. Why? Well, in verses 11 to 19, so the Gentiles might be grafted in. This is God's sovereign plan. It's three stages. Stage one, Israel transgressed, and and so God brought salvation to the Gentiles. Even though many Jews believed, most were hostile 
to Jesus and Christianity. Consider Acts. How was the news shared? The gospel would be preached in a synagogue. Uh, Paul or another uh, uh, apostle would come into a town. They'd go to the synagogue where the Jews were gathering, and they would preach the gospel about Jesus. And some would believe. And And most would harden their hearts. And so the preacher would turn to the Gentiles in town and the many converts that were there. And the church grew, and it became this multi-ethnic place of both Jew and Gentile. Imagine if Paul shows up at a synagogue and the whole synagogue is converted in every town. Christianity then would be seen as a renewal movement within ethnic Israel. But that's not what happened. The Jews transgressed, Paul says in verse 12, means riches for the world. And so that leads to stage two. The Gentiles make Israel envious. This is part of Paul of God's plan. Now, not every envy is tinted with selfishness because it's not always either a grudging discontent or a sinful covetousness. At base, envy is the desire to have for oneself something possessed by another. I remember uh, early on in my following of Jesus that I had a friend whose witness to me was that in the midst of incredible trial, they continued to follow after Jesus. They got up every morning, they read their Bible, and when that happened, it, was, it spurned in me this envy to be like this person. This is what Paul is saying. Just as the Gentiles could only have heard because of Israel's rejection of Jesus, now the Jews can only believe because those who were accepting Christ were Gentiles. The Jew will see the promises being fulfilled in the Gentiles and believed. Now, Keller gives a possible example of this in Acts chapter 6. After the earlier church sets apart officers, deacons, to care for the needy, we are told that a lot of Jewish priests then converted to Christ. Why? The priests were supposed to be the ones who brought the people's tithes and resources to the poor, but that did not happen, and it should have. Now the Christians, under the power of the Holy Spirit, were being generous and creating a community in which every needy person was cared for. This was what Israel was supposed to do. And it seems the priests saw it and were envious and convicted, and they listened to the gospel. And Paul probably has something like this in mind here in Romans 11. First, the Jews won the Gentiles, but in the second stage, the Gentiles will win the Jews. And that leads to the third stage. Sometime in the future where there will be a great harvest of Jews who will come to faith in Jesus. Paul wants us to see that God hasn't given up on his ancient people and neither should we. Will we give the free offer of the gospel to all men and women. Remember, we talked about that two weeks ago, how the gospel is meant to be offered to all. And Paul is continuing to press this theme. His gospel is a gospel, a gift of grace to be offered to the whole world, both Jew and Gentile. And that leads, what will happen? What is the plan for Israel? A regrafting. Paul images forth an olive tree. Now, here's an image of this idea of grafting. William Ramsey, the Scottish New Testament scholar, says this, In exceptional circumstances, it is customary to reinvigorate an olive tree, which is ceasing to bear fruit, by grafting it in with a shoot of a wild olive, so that the sap of the tree ennobles this wild shoot, and the tree now again begins to bear fruit. This is the image. Branch one is 
Israel. In branch two, the scion is what it's called, a young shoot or bud with beneficial characteristics, color, flavoring, disease resistance is offered in, and that is the Gentile. The scion, the wild olive branch, is a dynamic growing thing, but is able to draw and produce life only because it's grafted into the tree from which it draws nourishment. At the same time, the presence of the branch renews the whole tree, kicking on all its system. And Paul applies this metaphor specifically to the Gentiles. They are the wild olive shoots that have been grafted into the people of God so they can share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. The life-giving gospel of justification by faith, of union with Christ, which has been the faith of believing Israel since the beginning in Abraham. That's the root. And Israel was a beneficiary of it, and now the Gentiles are. And the sap of the Gentiles being grafted into this tree will produce fruit. And that fruit will be seen in the Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus. The root is Christ. It is the salvation history of the church. And God is regrafting both Jew and Gentile into Christ. The church is not the new plan, but the Israel of God, which grows from and completes the root of Abraham. There is no salvation apart from the root. Whoever desires to be included in God's saving plan must be grafted into that stock. God did not cut down the tree and plant a new one. He grafted other shoots into the true and eternal roots. Not in place of former branches. Thus, the church does not replace the synagogue, but is joined to the historic root of Israel, extending from Abraham to Christ. And this shows that there remains room on the stock for Jews to be grafted again into their former place. So what do we do with all that? Well, I think first, Paul tells us to be humble. Do not boast over those branches. You do not support the root. The root supports you. The power of life is in the root, in Jesus and not the branches. There's no salvation, Paul is saying, apart from Jesus, who was a Jew. There is no church, which is not an engrafting into and continuance of God's work in Israel. There is but one tree, the one people of God. And so he says, in response to that, be humble, have reverent fear. All that keeps us from being broken off is the faith that God has mercifully given to us as gift. To all of us, most of us in this room, we're all outsiders, Gentiles, wild branches that God grafted in. And so Paul says, meditate on the kindness of God. Be jarred from any kind of complacency that you deserve this or earn this or that somehow you're better in the grand scheme of things. Be humble and with fear and trembling, don't grow complacent to the mercy of God. He exhorts us here to continue in God's kindness. God has been kind to us, this church, here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, thousands of years after what Paul is writing, to call us by his mercy and graft us into his church. And one of the ways you know that you're in God's love, according to the scriptures, is that you continue and persevere. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That is a call to perseverance. And to remember that God is able to graft again. Just as God saves you outside wild branches, he can also save those who are part of the original tree. 
And this leads to the last section of what will happen to Israel. In verses 25 to 31, I want you to notice the words in this section. Here's what Paul says. He says, a deliverer will come. He will banish ungodliness. This will be my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts of God and the calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't take back his gifts. He doesn't revoke his calling. For they too will be shown mercy, just like you were be shown mercy. So what will happen to Israel? Israel's hardness and rejection of the gospel is not permanent. And Israel will be saved. And here Paul quotes both Isaiah and Jeremiah. Notice the words. Israel as a whole people, not every person here, when he says all of Israel will be saved, Israel as a whole people, as a people group, will be saved. A great mass of Israel will experience salvation. It could be revival. It could be a steady stream. But it will only be by faith in Jesus, the deliverer who's to come, the, the one that can banish sin because he bore it on his body in the cross, uh, the one who showers love on his people as a gift and makes them his beloved. It's given to Jew and Gentile alike, not because they have done anything, not because they've merited it by obeying the law, but because of free grace and mercy alone. And the only way Jew and Gentile can be a part of that root is through the blood and mercy of Jesus. So friends, that's where we find ourselves here as we come to the end. The application for us this morning is what we read about in verse 32. Marvel at mercy. Verse 32, he says, God has consigned on all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Our, our disobedience, all the ways that we don't listen, that we run away like children from God, hiding from his word, all the ways we harden our hearts so we don't understand, all the ways that we do those things and stumble and fall, all those disobediences are so that God can have mercy on us. It's an astonishing claim that Paul makes here. God goes so far as to hand over people to disobedience, Jews to pride in the law, Gentiles in rebellion against the law, in order that he might show mercy on both. At long last, the answer to the dreary rehearsal of sin in Romans 1 to 3, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has locked sinners in their own rebellion. He's barred and bolted the doors. He's eliminated any way of escape except through his mercy. I don't know if you've done an escape room, right? Like, it's a kind of a fun deal. My son Judson did one the other night. He said it was the one they did was kind of lame, but uh, Danette and I did one with, with some folks in the church, and, and it was fun. Like, but you have to solve all these riddles and clues, and the doors are kind of barred, so you can't get out until you solve the clues, and you have a time limit to get out in that time. God has locked sinners in their own rebellion and barred and bolded the doors, eliminating any way of escape. And the only way out is his mercy. See, Paul applies the same line of argument to world history, which he applied to the justification of sinners in chapters 3 through 5. For the sinful world, as well as the sinful individual, the only access to mercy is from condemnation. And this is a great mystery 
which apart from revelation would be sheer folly. God does not work with merely unserviceable material. He works with enemies. And the enemies were us, individuals here. And the enemies were entire peoples. And before they could be justified, they must all be condemned so God can come in and create and renew something out of nothing. And you and I get to be a part of this story. And so the application is to wonder at the mercy of it all that both you get to partake as one who is disobedient, who is wandering away, who is not even grafted in, just this wild branch. That was you and that was me. And God came and rescued you and planted you back firmly into Jesus, the branch, the gardener, the roots. And you and your story and all the ways that you've been disobedient and all the ways that you failed and all the ways that you've stuffed your ears and blinded your eyes, all of those parts of your story become a way for you to marvel at God's mercy and then share that mercy because it's the only thing that qualifies you. There's nothing about your story that's good other than that part of the story of God's mercy rescuing you where you're at and redeeming you from the pit and setting you on a rock and allowing you to declare the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. God, we, we pray that this morning you would help us to marvel again at just what you've done for us. The way that you've rescued us, the way that you've included us in this epic story that you're weaving in all of time. Like, I know this is like technical and there's all this stuff in this passage, but help us to walk out of here at the marvel of mercy and that you are a merciful God that shows mercy to the world, Jew and Gentile. And that you are faithful and you will bring us faith, uh, uh, hearts to believe and eyes to see and ears to hear and understand about Jesus. May he receive glory at our marveling in your mercy this morning, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.